John 17 that we're looking at this morning as we continue our series through the Gospel of John is Jesus' final prayer before his death. If you read on from John 17 into chapter 18, what you're going to find is the very next thing is they go to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is betrayed and arrested, falsely accused, and ultimately crucified. So the very, within 12 hours of this prayer, Jesus is hanging on the cross. This is his final prayer. And what's amazing about his final prayer is that he prays first for his relationship with the Father about their love and glory, and he gives us insight into the nature of the Trinity. But beyond that, he begins to pray for the disciples and for us. So he first prays for the disciples and then those who will believe later on, which is us. And he prays for our unity with one another and about our union with God, this unique thing that we don't really hit on much um, in our churches, but I want to talk about it a little bit today because I think one of the things Jesus is doing in this passage, in this prayer, is he's peeling back the curtain to the relationship between the Father and the Son. And you could add in there Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So he's giving us insight into the love of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, and he's inviting us into that as well. So the plan today is to to look at the love of God on three ways. First, the nature of the love of God. Second, the experience or how we experience the love of God. And third, the telos, which means the ends, goals, aims of the love of God. One of my worries as I've been looking at this stuff this week is that um, it's very esoteric, okay? It's very like philosophical. And so if I lose you, it's because I've lost myself, it's just not a good thing. Um, but I do think that there's a, a role to play in reading Scripture and the prayers of Jesus in this instance to let our vision be cast higher to give meaning and purpose and direction to our own lives. And that's my hope this morning. So I want to reread as we look first at the nature of the love of God. I want to reread some of these uh, verses that Dave just read for us, starting in verse 1. Just to kind of hold on to the nature of the, of the love of God. What are we getting insight into who God is? What is he like, his relationship, Father, Son, Spirit? Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. Then he goes on in verse 4 and 5, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Some version of what their relationship is. Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you, before the world existed, eternal. And then verse 23 and 24, he's praying about the disciples, or us, I mean, the believers years later, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, that's us, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So what we're getting is we're getting specific glimpse at the father and son relationship. Christianity believes in a trinity, one God in three persons in eternal loving union. So before time began, there was father, son, and Holy Spirit for all time. One God in three persons, an eternal loving union. And some aspect of their eternal loving union is here where where Jesus is praying, Father, glorify me with the glory that I had before 
with you before the world existed. That's in verse 5. And then talking about the love, verse 24, Father, because you love me before the foundation of the world. So before the world existed, there was shared glory and shared love that is, that is being experienced in the Trinity. One thing we need to think about for a moment is that word glory or glorify. It's one of those words that, uh, that we use in Christian circles a lot, and you've heard me talk about it. On one level, glory does mean, in a sense, what it means here. Um, not just praise, like uh, somebody you know, who has a lot of followers, but glory is actually honor or renown. It is worthiness, worth. So it's talking about the worth that God the Father and the Son have, the worthiness. And secondly, it comes from a Hebrew idea meaning heavy. The, the Hebrew root behind it is kavod, which basically means something that's very heavy and bigger than everything else. And in that sense, it's talking about something that matters or has significance. So Jesus is saying, t- telling us that the, from before time began, God the Father and God the Son were sharing in eternal worth and significance, kind of sharing it with one another, not fighting for it, which is very different than how we deal with glory. Every one of us wants to matter. We want significance. But we get it by stealing from other people or from drawing it from other people. And one of the challenges is, so if, if you are the funniest person in a group, that, that's sort of where you get your, your kind of role in that group. Or if you are the, the talented one at work when it, comes to, um, when it comes to new ideas, if you're intelligent or beautiful or whatever it is that you find your worth in, you will find it in your circles, whether it's your social circles, inside of your family, at work, at, wherever it is, you will find your worth to the extent that you can play that role better than everyone else. But when somebody else comes in to that group, that workplace, and is more talented, more beautiful, what does it do? It knocks you off your feet. It crushes us. We are either get angry and want to fight them internally, or we shrink because their glory outweighs ours. We're constantly in this battle of seeking glory from one another. It's what breaks down marriages and relationships and friendships because we cannot share. But God is in an eternal loving union, sharing in glory, not just in glory, but also in love, as Jesus talks about here. The love that he talks about is something that you could read through the rest of Scripture, and especially the way John talks about it, which is the Father loves the Son. He sends the Son, gives the Son all authority, glorifies the Son. The Father gives all he has to the Son. And what does the Son do? The Son does what the Father desires. He submits to the Father's purposes and will. The Son gives himself for the Father. And the Holy Spirit, which was talked about a chapter earlier, the Holy Spirit comes from the Father and the Son and honors the Son. The Holy Spirit doesn't honor himself. The Holy Spirit exists to honor the Son, to bring glory and honor to the Son, each of them giving themselves for the other. And that's the definition of love from a Trinity perspective. Love is not warm feelings or affection. It's not romance. It's not excitement. Love is self-giving, mutual self-giving, eternal mutual self-giving, pouring yourself out for the good of the other. And that's what the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit do forever. 
So the first thing we see in the nature of the Trinity, even in this prayer, is that the, the nature of God in, in Trinity of persons is that, is that the Father, Son, and Spirit glorify and love one another continually and freely. And as a result of that, they create. God creates. So, you know, every, um, every ancient myth or religion has a way of creation being birthed, and creation is birthed always out of violence. If you go and read all the ancient narratives, it's basically two deities or two spiritual powers are fighting, and then in their fight, violence happens, and the creation, the cosmos is born, and we're here, okay? Now, our, our secular modern scientific view is somewhat similar. It's the view of an impersonal violence, a random act 14 billion years ago. There was a bang, and then invite, that's violent, but impersonal, and everything spewed forth and then evolved into the creation that we're in today. Now, one of the challenges of this godless view, the completely secular view, is that it takes away all the things we enjoy in life. There's no meaning, purpose, love in life. Philosopher Bertrand Russell wrote uh, 50, 100 years ago, he was an English uh, philosopher from the 20th century, he wrote in one of his books, kind of summarizing the way that we live in a world that was just kind of came about randomly. Man is the product of causes which had no prevision. In other words, there was no God designing it. No prevision of the end they were achieving. Man's origin, growth, hopes, and fears, his loves and beliefs are but the outcome of accidental association of atoms. And all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, inspiration, genius are destined to extinction and the eventual death of the solar system. Cheerful. So, you know, we live to achieve stuff. We want to matter. All of us want to be somebody. From a little kid to, you know, at the end of our life, we want to matter. We want to be somebody. We want to have done something, whether it's have kids or do something with our work or, or be somebody to have significance. We want to matter. And what Bertrand Russell is peeling back the curtain on is from a completely secular point of view, if, if there is no God to design it, then all of your achievements matter nothing. You know, just this week, uh, astrophysicists were talking about a new star that they had just discovered because of the Hubble telescope, a star that took 13 billion years for the light to reach us. 13 billion years. And they believe that that star, which every star, so you know, is a solar system. We have a sun. It is a star, and it has planets revolving around it, right? Well, 13 billion years ago, there was a star that existed for about 100 million years, a really long time, longer than any of us are going to live. And it's been gone for 12.8 billion years. Over 12 billion years ago, it blew up. And one day, that's going to happen to our sun. And then, and then whether you win the Nobel Peace Prize or you murder hundreds of people, it doesn't matter. Because who's going to know and who's going to remember? 12 billion years from now, your life does not matter. If there is no design, no intention, no God. And the same goes for beauty and awe and love, all these emotional feelings that we know are real. Like, I love my kids. I really love my favorite sports teams, right? I get in awe of a sunset 
or snow can be beautiful, or music can just move me to tears or joy, right? All of those experiences, what are they? Well, they're just evolutionary biology creating in your brain the ability to survive. And over the course of hundreds of millions of years, we've kind of realized that like, we survive better by loving things because if we love them, then we will you know, kind of repopulate the planet, that sort of thing. That uh, expressing beauty and having a sense of awe kind of controls us in peace. It, it's, it's a sociological, biochemical thing that just happens, but there is no such thing as love and beauty. It just doesn't exist if there is no God. But Christianity believes in a creator God. It doesn't tell you exactly how it plays out. You can still kind of live into and understand some of these scientific things, but there is design behind it. It is not just random acts. There's design and intention. And what's amazing about the way that Christianity describes the creation is it describes it as a birthing out of the loving union of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So if somebody said, why did God create? The answer is, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are in loving, eternal union with one another. And what happens in that loving union of giving and receiving and giving and receiving and being one is the birthing of creation so that it can share and spread that loving union. And creation springs forth with design and intention. There is meaning. And creation springs from God's eternal purposes. There is love. So in the ancient myths, the violence would suggest that power is all that matters. In a secular and godless myth or, or view, there's no meaning. But in the God of the Bible, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit birthing the creation that we live in, there is meaning and value found in love, the love of God born into this creation, born into the cosmos that we live in. And then, you know, the high point of creation is humanity, and God creates us in his image, right? What does he do? He creates male and female, two persons that are distinct. The male and the female are distinct, who in loving union become one, according to Genesis 2, and they're naked and unashamed. What are they doing? They're reflecting the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in loving union, naked and unashamed with one another. And what are we meant to do in that loving union? Birth new life, just like the Father, Son, and Spirit does. We are not ourselves by ourselves. It is not good for us to be alone, God declares when Adam is there by himself. We are made for community. We're made for community with God and with one another. John Paul II in Theology of the Body writes, when God says it is not good that man should be alone, he affirms that alone, the man does not completely realize his essence. It is only by existing with someone, and put even more deeply and completely, by existing for someone. In other words, the image of God that we reflect is not just that we're rational, we're smarter than the alligator, it's that we're relational, made for relationship with God and with one another. And we find the fullness of our reflection of God in community, not by ourselves, not alone. 
So the first thing we see is the nature of the love of God. He is a trinity who creates out of love and glory being shared. The second thing, it's the invitation into the experience of this love of God. We get this in verses 21 to 23, where we read Jesus' Jesus' prayer for us, the disciples that come after, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. You know, what's, uh, th- this gets at that wording that is what I would call prepositional life. Look at the prepositions in here. It's in Christ, right? Christ in us. So we are in Christ. Christ is in us as God the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father. If you want to take the prepositions a little bit more, they're not in this passage, but we are called children of God. We are from God, of God. That is our identity. And the Holy Spirit, according to uh, chapter 16, is with us and in us. So the Spirit is in us, the Spirit is with us, we are in Christ, and we are of and from God the Father. There's an inness that God wants to invite us into. Discipleship, growing in the life that God has for us, is not just following rules, it's an invitation into a relationship with the Trinity. And He wants us to make it our reality day in and day out, to walk in the Spirit, in union with Christ, What's amazing about this is that there's something in all of these words that sound really confusing that, okay, if we go back to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in eternal loving union, what Jesus is doing here is inviting us into that dance, into that relationship. He's saying, look, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have forever been in loving union together, and when you come to faith in Christ and the Spirit takes up residence in you, God is saying, yeah, I want you in this. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and you come into this dance, this relationship. How do we do it? How do we kind of develop this union with God that that the Eastern uh, Christians talk about? We don't do it much in the West because we like to be very rational. And if it's not a rule I can follow, I don't know what to do with it, right? But in the East, they're a little more comfortable with relationship. Jesus talks about abiding in Him in John 15. We read it just a couple weeks ago. As a branch abides in the tree, so you must abide in me. A a branch has its life source in the tree, right? Jesus is saying, make your life source in me, the thing that, that animates and motivates and drives you. Draw all of your sustenance spiritually and emotionally from me. Cultivate your communion with Jesus and reliance on him. And you know how you do that? It's through the habits and practices of your life. We can shape and reshape the loves of our heart by the things we do and do habitually. And you can continually abide in and rely on Jesus and deepen your communion with Him, or you can ignore Him. The things we do do something to us and shape and reshape our loves, and Jesus is saying, abide in me, continually draw from me, feed on me. And in John 16, he promises a helper, the Holy Spirit, another way that we experience the love of God, kind of deepen into that union. It's the Holy Spirit in us and with us that allows us to practice the presence of God, to listen to the Holy Spirit, to be led by the Holy Spirit. 
in Psalm 46 that we said together, it said, be still and know that I am God, which means I have to probably turn off my phone, right? Because it keeps beeping, buzzing every minute or so. But you know what I do when I'm practicing the presence of God? I have my phone right there. Like, like that's not going to distract me continually. It is. Our lives are filled with activity and distraction. And and the psalmist says, sometimes you've just got to be still. You've got to create rhythms in your life of being still with God, listening to the Holy Spirit. God, speak to me. What do you want me to know? What do you want me to do? What do you want to say to me this day? How do we experience this union with God? It is by abiding. It's by listening. And it's by being in community. We cannot experience the love and union with God by ourselves. Jesus' prayer is not, actually, as one commentator put it, Jesus' prayer is not, may they be one as if we are not one. It's actually a a continuation thing. It's, may they continue to be one. I've made them as one. I've birthed us as brothers and sisters in Christ as one. May they continue in that unity. But we struggle with that. We can't do civility, let alone unity. There was an article just a couple days ago in The Atlantic where the author was talking about why are people acting so weird? And what she was saying was, why are we so hostile with each other, yelling at each other on airplanes, smacking each other at award shows? Why are these things happening, right? And she writes, well, you know, the, the people, the, the different studies are suggesting that as a result of the pandemic, there's stress, people are drinking more alcohol. And lastly, something that has happened even pre-pandemic but been exacerbated by it, we are more disconnected than we've ever been. The pandemic loosened ties between people. Kids stopped going to school, their parents stopped going to work, parishioners stopped going to church, not you guys. People stopped gathering in general Sociologists think all of this isolation shifted the way we behave. Robert Sampson, a Harvard sociologist who studies social disorder, told me, when we become untethered, I guess from each other, we tend to prioritize our own private interests over those of others or the public. When we lack the community and the regular commitment to one another, we become untethered and prioritize ourselves. But we can't just say, let's try harder to be together because honestly, we're selfish and we're afraid. And we know when we get too close to somebody, they will hurt us. And we, so we live guarded and defensive and everyone feels like a threat. And that's why our unity with one another, let's say as a local church, let alone the big C church, is dependent on our union with Christ. Union births unity because our unity is meant to reflect the Trinity. God's unity is mutual self-giving. Mutual self-giving, an eternal dance of giving and receiving love and glory giving and receiving love and glory without any worry or fear. Apart from union with Christ, kind of deepening our relationship with Christ first, we can try to develop unity with one another. But, you know, we all actually have, instead of unity, friendship with people, right? We have friendship with people not based on kind of our union with Christ, What are the basis of my friendships that aren't necessarily based on union with Christ? It's old friends, meaning people that I've known for a long time. 
And so they know me. We've known each other for decades, right? And long history is a really good basis for unity, but it is not Trinitarian divine unity. Another way that I have friends is common interest. There's people that, that we share like uh, common interest in sports or music or food. And so we can go to a restaurant together or we can go to a concert together or watch a game together. But common interest is very thin unity. We also have common purpose friends, I do. We all do. We have common purpose friends, people that we work with or we are on the same kind of, uh, we have the, the same cause that we're in, in favor of or the same political enemies, right? So you become unified when you have a common enemy. But this is just pragmatic unity. It benefits my bigger concern. I want to achieve something. Our workplace needs to get somewhere. So we'll be unified. We'll be friends to the extent that we are accomplishing something. But the unity that Jesus talks about is built more than that. Common history, common interest, common purpose can build a type of human unity, but it is always going to break down on our sinfulness, our selfishness, our pride, our need to get our own way. Because I will look to my friends to give me the meaning and purpose that I'm meant to find in union with Christ. I will look to my cause and not to them to give me that sense of purpose. I will need to be loved and approved of by others, and if they're not, I might pull back. But to the extent that I am brought into the relationship with God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, I see God the Father's love for me, my fellowship with Jesus, to the extent that I'm doing that, kind of really abiding in Christ, walking in the Spirit, to that extent, I have peace, a love and a glory that I don't need to steal from other people. To that extent, I can live into a Christ-like unity that we're called into. And to put it another way, and Jesus hints at this here, we need the cross of Christ to infuse our relationships both as the model and the power to live out unity. Jesus said in verse 1, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And then in verse 5, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. You know what's amazing about this? Most of the commentators note something here that I missed when I was reading it at first. It's this. It sounds like Jesus is praying, okay, I'm about to die, but I can't wait to get to heaven to be with you, Father. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus says the word the hour. The hour is about his crucifixion. The crucifixion, the time of his death, his forsakenness on the cross has come. Glorify yourself in this, in this cross. What Jesus is suggesting, pointing at, is that the cross is the fullest display of the glory of God. The glory that God had before creation, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in this eternal, forever union of, of just majesty and love, that is fully revealed on the cross of Christ. It's not just a glimpse at it, it's not just a hint you see the fullness of God's glory and majesty on the cross. The cross shows the nature of the glory of God. And it also tells us this, greatness, significance, is not in power or fame or in getting things, but in sacrificial love. And therefore, it's the model 
for what our unity is meant to look like. The cross should be the model for all of our relationships with a spouse, with a best friend, with your parents, within a church. It's the model of the community that we're called into of grace and forgiveness and honesty and vulnerability and commitment to one another. And it's also the power to live that out. Unless I know I'm forgiven and accepted and loved by grace, which is what the cross affords, I will be trying to find acceptance and love from others. The love and significance we seek from others, Jesus is telling us, is fully ours in Christ. And when we abide in that deeply, we're able to live out the unity that we're called into. Lastly, what is the telos or the ends of God's love for us? First, the reason why God's love existed and birthed creation and invites us into the experience of unity and union is for the world, that the world may believe and know. What's amazing about this is that our unity, Jesus is saying, our unity reveals the nature of God and the gospel more than our words. 1 John 4.12 puts it this way, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. If God abides in us and we love one another, people see the love of God, which is the gospel, more than our words. And it's part of why uh, you see this now more and more is that believing is preceded by belonging in many circles. It doesn't mean you don't ultimately have to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, but people need a plausible community, a place of civility, (laughs) let alone generosity and humility, of kindness and forgiveness. They need to see that because people need healing. People need a space where they can feel safe in the midst of their guilt, and shame and fear, where they can experience the peace of God so they can trust the God who gives peace. The one end of God's love is for the world, to share in his love. And the second is for us. And I'm going to try to be quick here. I'm not going to read the scripture passage. But here's what's amazing, I think. One of the things that is being suggested in this passage is not just about our life now, but it's about where it's all going. Where it's all going is a sharing in and experiencing the love of God more and more and more. Paul prays in Ephesians that we would grasp how high and wide and deep is the love of God for us. And and one commentator suggests we will spend the rest of eternity grasping the depth of God's love for us. The first creation in Genesis 1 and 2 begins with a husband and wife brought together. It's a marriage, right? Adam and Eve. How does the creation end in Revelation? It ends in a wedding, the marriage supper of the Lamb. But that is not between a man and a woman. It is between Christ and his church. The end of creation, the end of eternity, is Christ marrying us. It's kind of hard to get your head around here. But what it's suggesting is that in part now we experience union with God. But when we enter eternity one day, God will fill us fully. We will become one with Him. A separate person, an individual, 
the church, and individuals within it, we will remain ourselves in full union and full communion with God, to which something like a husband and wife union is only a sacramental foretaste. And God is saying, I want to invite you into the life of the Trinity forever. We will enter into eternity experiencing the fullness of God's love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as if we are the Son ourselves. God says, I want to bring you into the fullness of all that I've been experiencing and let it be your experience forever. God's love gives. It gives and gives and gives, and it invites us in to open ourselves to receive His gift, the gift of His Son, the gift of His Holy Spirit dwelling in us, the gift of His love poured out in our lives more and more for all eternity. As we close now, instead of going to a song of response, I'm going to invite you, along with me, to, to pause and listen, to listen to God, listen for God. We're going to practice that, be still and know that I am God, and listen. You know, God will use words that are part of your rational interior dialogue. You have a brain, and it's always talking. Right now, as I've been talking, you're like, what is he talking about? Or, oh, pizza would be really good for lunch. You take that same brain and say, God, I invite you in to speak to me about who you are. Reveal yourself to me again today. And listen for one word, one phrase, and just hold on to that. Say, God, okay, I believe that this is your word for me today. One other aspect of your loving glory that you want to share with me personally today. So let me just invite us into prayer, and then we'll leave a time of silence, and then I'll invite Trudy up to lead us in prayer. God, our Father, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in loving union, you created the world, and you brought us into this world. You reconciled us through your Son that we could be brought back into relationship with you, that we could enter the divine dance, that we could be those who are in Christ, the Holy Spirit taking up residence in us, children of God, and not just for now, for all eternity, that we are meant to experience the depth of your love and glory, and for that to continue deeper and wider forever. And so we open ourselves up to receive the gift of your loving affirmation this morning. Speak to us, Lord. Your servants are listening. What do you want us to know about you? What do you want us to hear you say to us? Whatever word or phrase the Holy Spirit brings to your mind, that inner dialogue, you can trust that that is God speaking to you. God, what do you want us to know about you? How do you want to affirm us today? What do we individually need to hear? And now, loving Father, we give ourselves to you. 
pray that you would open us to the fullness of your love for us. May we walk out of here affirmed in your presence with us. Deepen our union with you, our unity with one another. May we experience already what will be ours one day in full. So into your hands we give ourselves this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.